show, How Do They Get There? I'm your host, Sean Penn. Today on the show, I'm, I'm excited because my guest is Maureen Ryan. And Maureen, she's produced a lot of great films, particularly, I mean, some of the seminal documentaries that have come out in the last, you know, several years. I think the first big one uh, that the public and also critics took note of was Wisconsin Death Trip. You got to watch that if you haven't. It's getting re-released this year. It's about these grisly murders uh, in this area, very remote, Black River Falls in Wisconsin. She also produced The Gates, which was about this over 20-year journey of these artists to try to get this basically the stage piece together, which consisted of like 7,500 gates alongside Central Park. Um, that's a great film. I mean, it, uh, it really speaks to art and the commitment that's necessary in order to make it. She also produced, uh, I think more recently, Becoming. That's the Michelle Obama documentary, which essentially follows her, uh, you know, along the book tour circuit when she's kind of promoting her book, but then also jumps back uh, to 2008 and um, kind of the moments that really defined her life. And she co-produced the uh, that seminal, I love this one, the Man on Wire doc. That was about the Philippe Petit, uh, that high, uh, the tightrope walker who, you know, decided to walk across the World Trade Center and did it in um, 1974, I believe. I think she would describe that as a hybrid, more of a hybrid documentary, because there's so many uh, reenactments in that, but they work. I mean, that's the first time, and I think I told her this, that I've seen them do done like really well uh, to the point where it elevates the story, which is so cool. And then Icing on the Cake is that it won the Oscar for Best Documentary in 2009 and also the BAFTA Award for Best British Film that you know, same year. And it really continued the relationship that, um, you know, she and James Marsh had built uh, over, you know, a number of years that I guess started with Wisconsin and then has spanned through so many other documentaries and, um, you know, also a narrative feature. That's the king. And she didn't, she told me that she worked more on the development side of it. But man, that's a great film. You got to watch it. It's it's like a hole in the wall in that vintage time of 2005, 2006 um, kind of before, I guess, laying the ground a little bit for work, for works like Little Miss Sunshine. I mean, all these Southwest films that are about, um, you know, the family and that uh, um, dysfunctionality that, you know, governs uh, <laughs> some of that element, right? Bill Hurt and Gil Garcia Barnell and um, Paul Dano are in that, so you got to watch that one. But, I mean, in addition to the films, you know, the practical working on them, she also has this other side to her career, which is the uh, sort of prof- being a professor at Columbia, which she's done for a number of years, I think since the early aughts, maybe a little bit before that. And she's really authored the seminal book about independent film production. It's called Producer to Producer, a step-by-step guide to low-budget independent film producing. Um, you got to look at that one. In her conversation, we, we talked about that. We talked about the book, the film's uh, collaboration with James Marsh, Influence of the late, great uh, Peter Bogdanovich, documentary film production, and really some practical lessons for, you know, film production. This was fun. I mean, really gritty film conversation. Dick Johnson is Dead, which is uh, <laughs> great. Another one that she produced, a documentary that she co-produced, actually. That's about uh, a lot of things. It's about psychiatry. It's about grief. It's about mourning. It's about awakening. It's a, you got to watch it. It's on Netflix. Uh, as is Becoming, uh, the Michelle Obama doc, that's also on Netflix. You can watch second edition of Producer to Producer. You can find wherever you buy your books. She's currently working on the third edition, um, which we also talked about. 
And we talked about Nashville, man, and country music. This was a fun one. Hope you enjoy. I was kind of enamored with that. like Because when you're on set, you're the person, when someone has a question about the logistics of a production, they're going to come to you. So what is it, what is it like... Did you feel kind of out of your element when you were working on your kitchen? Yeah, so it was really an incredible experience. So I designed an IKEA kitchen. Yeah. And then my husband and I, who's he's a cinematographer, installed it in seven days over Christmas break. Wow. So ourselves, no yeah. help, nothing, right? And so it was this wonderful experience that we had of like big challenges every day to try to problem solve and feeling like every single minute of every decade that we had been filmmakers was what enabled us to pull that off Mm. because filmmaking is just problem solving. I mean, it's creative problem solving, right? And so it was really fun to kind of really challenge ourselves in something that we're not experts in. We we have that whole 10,000 hours of mastery as me as a producer and him as a cinematographer but not as building kitchens. <laughs> and that's why, do you, is that something that you normally do? Like, do you try to find areas where you're not, you're not like a master, you know, and see if you're able to kind of conquer your objective? I hadn't thought about it until you just said it, yeah. but the answer is yes. Um, I'm, I'm really into gardening right now. Mm. We, we have a little cottage on Cape Cod for the last couple of years. And so it's, I'm a very curious person and I'm somebody who has certain interests and then I really like to learn about that and then engage with it in a very hands-on way. Did, um, did yeah. being involved in film spur that out or were you always, would you say that's your kind of natural tendency all throughout your life? Yeah, that's my natural tendency for sure. Um, it's, it's just my way into everything. Yeah. Um, I read a lot of newspapers and have mm. since I was very young. Um, and so I think that's just kind of my way into the world. And then I kind of pick things and then kind of follow up and go for it and, and really kind of learn it. But learn it by doing as opposed to just book knowledge. Yeah, interesting. What, what did you uh, notice yourself gravitating towards when you were reading newspapers? How did that, I mean, were you, did you come from a literary family, would you say? No, I came from a business family. So okay. my father was in business um, and my mom uh, was a, was a stay-at-home mom for a while and then went into as uh, working in kind of business as well. So it was very odd that I would um, go into film. It was yeah. not typical. But I would be reading every Friday, you know, the New York Times movie section cover to cover, mm. every review, all of that, starting at like the age of 12. And so it was clear that that was something I was interested in at a very young age. When you were reading reviews of films, did you um, was there a sense that you... you was it kind of hard to read sometimes because you wanted to get into that so much? Like, did you did you feel like when you were reading reviews and when you were reading about film, was there this desire that was kind of insatiable that you kind of you noticed in yourself at that point? Or did you notice it even before that point? Um, I made my first film when I was 10. Wow. Um, and I uh, did it because I didn't want to write book reports anymore. Mm, okay. Um, this is at a time where my family never owned a still camera. Mm. Um, I didn't know anything about filmmaking, yeah. but I just decided I was going to make a film. And so a friend of mine's dad had a Super 8 camera. This was back in the day. Yeah. Um, and I just got some girlfriends together and we just put together a short movie. Um, and that that's just what I did. Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, I had these kind of impulses at a very young age, but not 
any reason to have them because we very rarely went to the movies. Mm -hmm. We didn't watch television much. Only on weekends were we allowed to watch television. We couldn't watch it during the week. But I was kind of obsessed with both film and television and was able to figure out a lot about it just by, I think, reading and kind of focusing on it. So I think that kind of was the trajectory for the rest of my life. Of the films and television shows that you were that you were able to watch, right, uh, in that kind of uh, in that household, I mean, what did you did you find yourself gravitating towards certain films, certain directors, certain producers? I mean, what what do you think planted the seed with that? Yeah, I, I would say for me there were a couple of really important films. Mm-hmm. First one being um, at a, at a young age I saw um, the Peter Bogdanovich film. Um, I'm forget uh, what's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? Oh, yeah, wow. what's up, Doc? Yeah, which is one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. And it was just a revelation yeah. that people could kind of make that smart, wacky, yeah. c- comedic tone with a rom- rom- romance or romantic comedy, but like on a whole different level of kind of zaniness, but right. also intellectual and really well done. And very authentic. And very authentic. Great performances from <gasps> Randy Quaid, for instance. I think that's his best film. It's just, it's an incredible film. Um, and and so just, you know, and, and Barbara Streisand yeah. was extraordinary. And so yeah. was Ryan O'Neill. Yeah. I think it's one of his best pieces ever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that was a big film. And then the other one was Bananas mm. by Woody Allen. And oh, so yeah. that was one of those things where, once again, this, like, comedic tone of irreverence and kind of pushing things a little further than maybe they should go and realizing that that was out there and that was possible. And those, those really impacted me and have had an influence me ever since in terms of just feeling like that's what I'm looking for. Um, And it doesn't have to always be a comedy, but Mm -hmm. just something where you're, you're maybe pushing it a little further or you're, you're being irreverent. Um, and I, I think, like, you know, we'll get to it probably, but Dick Johnson is Dead yeah, is the yeah. perfect kind of... Harold and Maude was another one. So I would oh, say yeah. those three really had an impact on me. So yeah. so Harold and Maude, and the tone of that, too, is similar. So you can see this kind of pattern, and so then that kind of dark, twisted comedy, which is the, how I say it, is really what kind of has always uh, captivated me. Yeah. Man, Bogdanovich, he passed recently, too. Yes, he did. He did, I know. Lost the film. Woody Allen, it's interesting that you say that. You talk about the irreverence. Because he's such a good writer, he's able to even, um, and and you mentioned like how he pushes the boundaries, he's able to kind of stay even within that if he wants. I mean, he can just rely on innuendo, but he doesn't. He does take that step and and pushes it further. I think uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors is a perfect example with... uh, you know, all the great performances and, and dialogue in that. So as you're, as you're thinking about film, you're growing up, you mentioned that you come from a more of a business background. You don't necessarily have a lot of like filmmakers uh, influence, right? So then what is, what is the kind of the steps? I mean, you, you direct your, you made your first film when you were 10. And that, and that, when you were doing that, did you find yourself gravitating towards the role of producer or did you, did you um, see the sort of process as uh, more as a director? I mean, how did you kind of see your first film experiences? Yeah, so clearly I was a producer at that at that young age. I didn't have a word for it. Yeah. I didn't know what a producer did, right? Yeah. But clearly that's where I was coming from. So I've never I've done some directing when I was in film school, but it's not my passion. It's not my it's not where my talent lies. It's just not my impetus. It's bringing people together to create something, right? Yeah. And so that really is where I I love to be. 
And that's what my whole career is based on. So bringing people who want to be a part of something that's greater than themselves to then basically make something together that that is an experience that we all, you know, we all love and we all want to be a part of. Um, and so that was really what was going on, even though I didn't know it at yeah. the age of 10. And then I made my next film when I was in 12th grade. Mm. Um, I didn't want to write another uh, essay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it was Greek tragedy. So we ended up doing um, a film called Hippolytus Now, which was a takeoff on Apocalypse Now oh, yeah. um, about uh, by Euripides, uh, the yeah. story of Hippo Hippolytus. And so that was very much influenced by Saturday Night Live. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so just like that tone of, of early Saturday Night Live being something that I was still, you know, really interested in. So it, you could just kind of see that. But I knew nobody in film. I had no reason to think I would ever have a film career, um, and that continued through through college. Um, was it was were the Greeks attractive to you, like in terms of the subject material for film and? Writing? No, it was just what we were studying that you know that week in in uh, English class. Yeah. <laughs> so, so early, wait, so early SNL, and I definitely want to get back to this. But yeah. so you were uh, you were a fan of that, like in '75. Oh my God, it blew my mind. Yeah. What about what about it? Do you think was so mind blowing? Once again, I mean, by the way, Buck Henry, who is an yeah. early writer on Saturday Night Live, yeah. was also a writer on What's Up Doc. Oh yeah. So you can see those connections, right? But but once again, that irreverence and pushing things and having this twisted kind of tone yeah. is much darker than it is today. I mean, if you go yeah. back and watch those, it's a completely different show. Yeah. People were doing things from a very different point of view. And and there was the improv background, but yeah. not as much as it is now, right? right? So it was really about... Um, yeah, it was just, I just, I think I keep coming back to that kind of zaniness and, and yeah. reverence that I, I just really love, um, anti-authoritarian, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. so yeah, so that's where, where my, where my place on the comedy timeline goes. And that's what I just kind of really gravitated towards. I guess it's hard to sustain because I was thinking about it. I don't know when the last time I saw SNL was, but probably more of the earlier things. Maybe I, maybe I saw it in like 2010, 2011. I don't think I've revisited it. But I think the thing about that maybe early on is that, I mean, you had like Bill Murray uh, screaming a lot. You had uh, Aykroyd, top of his game. You know, you had Lauren who was just starting out who no one knew. I mean, I think the first taping of uh, SNL Spielberg was actually at, um, which is kind of cool. So I guess the, it's hard to sustain that that tone um, of, I guess, edginess throughout whatever the 40 or 50 years that show has been on. But I, I assume they try to still do that, right? Well, I, I, would, I would say that my take on it is that um, American humor has changed. Yeah. And I just don't see that really anywhere. Yeah. So it's therefore not on Saturday Night Live, right? right? So, so what it was in the first five years, and you had Belushi, yeah. you had um, Gilda Radner, Gilda, absolute yeah. brilliance. Mm -hmm. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Lorraine Newman, yeah. uh, you know, someone who just hasn't really had the the um, the credit that the she credit deserves. that she deserves. Yeah. And and then Bill and then you had Jane Curtin too. Yeah. I mean, these are these are just people who were really operating at such and Chevy Chase, right? And John Candy too. And, and and he was he was later. Was the first later, five yeah. years was pretty yeah. much that, that. Yeah. I mean, Chevy Chase left. I think he left after the first season. Yeah. But um, so that they were just at the top of their game, and they were working. Also, I mean, you just think about the writers of the show in the first yeah. five years. They were just really pushing it and really dark, you know. Um, and I just I just loved it. So that's but but I feel like. The show changed because American 
comedic taste change, humor, exactly. And so it reflects back on what we are. So now it's really these sketches and it's really kind of from the headlines and it's, and it's, and it's, it's very mainstream and, and it's, and that's what it is. Um, that's fine. Um, but it's just not what it was and what the DNA was. And then consequently the writing is reflective of that and the writers that they hire are reflective of that. So. so Bogdanovich, big influence. You're directing, uh, you kind of, you direct this, you know, this film when you're in 12th grade. Um, how do you, how I actually do you, didn't direct it. I produced it, though it. I didn't know what, that was really my title. So I brought in somebody to direct oh, it wow. and then we all wrote it together and then we rehearsed it and then we shot it. So yeah. So you were, you, and did you enjoy writing? Cause you, you mentioned you weren't, you didn't love writing the book reports or essays, but did you like the writing element collaboration now? I don't like writing. I'm not a good writer. Um, that's clear. Um, but I like collaborating. Yeah. So for me, it was more about bringing people together in a room, coming up with ideas, then deciding, okay, this is what we're going to do. But I mean, you, you mentioned in your book, producer to producer, that it is important, even if you're not a writer, that it is important to, first of all, have taste, read a lot of scripts, not just watch the films, but actually read, read them out and have a good sense of what it, what a writer does. And um, because if you if you don't, even if you're collaborating with you know the best writer, you're still going to be out of your element a little bit. I mean, do you still find that that's that's definitely the case in terms of your experience? Yeah, completely. I mean, you really need to know act structure. You really need to know what the requirements are from a narrative point of view. Yeah. Um, the importance of the beginning, the importance of the ending, and and all of the various beats in between, and to be able to give good notes to a writer, right? So I think that that's essential for a producer. You don't have to be a writer yourself. If you are, then that I think is super helpful because you know what it's like to be a writer. Um, but at the very least, you have to really understand narrative and you have to study that. So so that really, for me, is, is, is essential. Um, and that's and for any for any producer to be able to develop the, the material, right? You have a vision for it and you're working with writers and directors. Um, but then you have to be able to make sure you're kind of going in the direction that is necessary. You're a writer. I mean, you wrote the book, right? I, I, I don't call myself a writer. I call myself somebody who wrote a book. I wrote mm. two books. I'm actually on sabbatical this semester, so I'm doing the third edition of my textbook, right. Producer to Producer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I, I wrote a book, which is different. I know a lot of writers. Yeah. I'm not one of them. What led to the what led to the book? Um, I was te- I've been teaching. I was teaching at Columbia. I teach at Columbia, um, as you know, and uh, in the in the graduate film program, a class called Practical Production Two. It used to be called Producing the Short, mm-hmm. and there was no book. Yeah. So I was just like, well, maybe I'll just write a book and see what happens. And then what ended up happening was I got a publisher, and then it got out there, and it is now the book yeah. that American universities use to teach film production, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, how does that feel? Uh, it feels great. It's really, really wonderful, and it's so great when I get to meet people who know me first from the book, and then I'm, I'm their professor, or, or they meet me somewhere. Um, it's really gratifying. So I'm I'm... I'm I'm looking forward to doing the third edition. I've already started working on it. I've done one every seven years. I mm-hmm. feel like that's the right amount of time where enough has changed in our yeah. industry that you want to make sure that you're staying current. So you felt between two and three enough had changed that you you felt like another edition would be um, would kind of add fruit or would be more uh, you know would be impactful in terms of the state of film today. Yeah, I mean, even just going through chapter one right now. I've been working on it this week. Is just things have changed in terms of where where projects go now like yeah. it, it was it was kind of films in cinemas yeah. 
VOD, which mm-hmm. I haven't heard that word in a yeah. long time. It's yeah. streaming yeah. and not so much in cinemas, yeah. right? And so you need to reflect that. You don't want to have, have things in there that kind of feel. And then the other thing that I feel like has really had an impact is, um, is safety, and the and the real emphasis we put on making sure people are safe, and I mean that in all aspects. So, in in the new edition, I'll have things in there like intimacy coordinators oh, yeah. and um, what do you do uh, for keeping everyone safe. I'm not going to talk specifically about COVID, but just mm-hmm. about how would you do testing or how do you oh, have yeah. to think about that. Um, also, just extreme weather. Mm-hmm. and how that's had a real impact and is going to continue to have a real impact on production. So I just feel like there's there's a bunch of, of areas that I want to kind of go into and make sure that that's a part of this next edition. Wow. I just think about, um, I just think about the French Connection and uh, like William Friedkin and all those chase sequences that he didn't, uh, he didn't block off the street. He just <laughs> had a gumball on top and then, you know, just did his thing. So yeah, I guess uh, as the business changes in terms of where people are getting the films, the distribution has definitely changed. Uh, I think that is important to definitely add, you know, a layer of relevance. Um, so when you graduate, you went to Boston College, right? I did. And you studied undergrad. And you studied economics? I did. Undergrad, I studied economics as my major, and um, I think it was called fine arts as my minor. And what led to the, was economics rooted from your kind of family business uh, sense or... Yeah, I'd originally gotten into the business school and then mm-hmm. changed after one year. I re- realized that wasn't really what I was interested in, but I really love economics. Yeah. I mean, I think it, my my reason for majoring it was that I felt like the world is kind of ruled by economics. Yeah. And if you could understand more about that, you would understand more about the world. Um, and to this, to this day, I feel that way. I mean, I, I love reading about economics and, and theory and things like that. Too. Oh, yeah. you were? Okay, yeah. yeah. So it's just a really great perspective on the world. And then the fine arts minor allowed me to take film classes, film, film studies classes. There were a couple of production classes, art history, things like that, which was my other kind of passion. What, what was the plan? What was the plan at yeah. undergrad? Just for life at that point. You knew that you were definitely going to be in film. I, I wanted to be in film. I yeah. didn't know I would be in film. Okay. And this was also at a time where there were no, in, you know, it, there were a few internships. I was in Boston. So I got my own internship because I only, the only internships they provided was if you were a communications major mm. and I wasn't. So I had to go get my own. So I got my own in the last year while I was in Boston. And then I was able to leverage that to start working as a production assistant right out of school. But I didn't know if I was going to be able to do that. Um, it was just one of those things where, well, this is what I want to do and I'm going to do everything I can within my power. But it was a much less easier kind of, of place. And I knew nobody. I mean, my family had no contacts, yeah. none of it. So it just had to be kind of step by step, which is how I was able to pull it off. What was, uh, what was Boston like at that time? Boston was great. I really love Boston as a city. Um, it's a wonderful, I mean, there's 50 colleges, um, colleges yeah. in the greater Boston area. So it's like, it's a real city, but at the same time, there's so many undergrads. So you kind of feel like oh, you have yeah. a kind of like full reign of the city in its own yeah. way. And then there's so many people who are coming in for lectures and concerts and things like that. So it's very intellectually diverse. Um, so I loved it. That's Commonwealth Avenue, right? BC? or is that Boston College is actually in Chestnut Hill, which oh, yeah. is right outside. It, technically, I think a suburb, but it's like on the 
the end of the green line, I think it was. Did you spend time like uh, going to Cambridge and like seeing music and stuff? Or? I did after I graduated. So yeah. I stayed in Boston for a couple of years and worked as a first as a production assistant and as a, then as a grip electric freelance. Yeah. So I was freelancing. And so at that point, I moved to Alston and I lived right outside of Harvard Square near the um, Harvard Business School. Oh, yeah. um, so I spent a lot of time going to Harvard Square and 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 um, and doing and seeing a lot of movies. What were the uh, what did you see? Well, there were a lot of really great cinemas and still are, you know, like Coolidge Corner mm-hmm. and Brattle. And there was another place called um, Orson Welles, which is, oh, yeah. is closed now. Yeah. Um, and so um, so I just went to all the kind of repertory yeah. and whatever was out and just made sure I saw films every weekend. What do you learn? I mean, what did you learn from those initial experiences like working as a PA, working in, you know, as a grip um, that you still use today? I think one of the ways it's informed me as a producer is that I was a crew person. Mm-hmm. So I know what it's like to be a crew person and to work with a producer. Um, and there were some great producers and there were some really bad producers. Yeah. And so it was really good um, to have that perspective. One of the things I teach my students is feed your crew every six hours, right? Yeah. Um, I say to them, if that's the only thing you remember from the, the, the semester of this class, I've done myself a good a good deed for the industry. Because I remember being somebody who was working on a project, working hard, and then just not being fed every six yeah. hours. And yeah. it was just horrible because you had no agency and you had to just take it. Um, so I think that perspective really helped me and the, and the understanding of how important it is to be really good at communicating um, and to be organized. I think those are two really key traits of a good producer. So that helped me kind of understand what I wanted to be and what I didn't want to be when I was one. Is the quality of the food important or is it just the sustenance that's the focus? I think the quality is very yeah. important. Yeah, I really think that you you need to invest in that. Um, our students, you know, their first year projects into the first year projects, you know, their budgets really need to reflect what it, it what it's going to take to actually give everybody a good meal because everyone's working for free on a student yeah. film, right? Um, so you really need to do that. And I think they really see the difference. Like if you really do spend the time, money, whatever it is to make sure people are well fed for those two to three days um, they really appreciate it and it's going to make a difference speaking of budgets I mean you've included budgets in your book producer to producer Um, so when you when you were thinking about it uh, and you mentioned that it was derived from not having a manual or not having a book when you were kind of starting out did you did you notice things um, as you were kind of going through that process things about film that you weren't that you didn't necessarily feel like you were aware of at the time? Like, did you, did, was there a process of discovery while you were writing that book? Well, I was writing the book. I, I, at that point I had done a lot of productions. Um, I, you know, I, I came out of film school and I started working, um, in, in high budget, um, kind of corporate videos around the world. Mm -hmm. And I, I had had a lot of experience doing commercials and a lot of music videos and a lot of that. So I, and television series. And so I'd done a lot at that point and, and feature feature films. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I really kind of knew that world and I was doing it. The book is is situated for the emerging filmmaker. So somebody who's not doing a studio film, they're doing independent films, they're self-financed probably, and really need to know the nuts and bolts of it. So situating it there meant that it was something that I I definitely was in my wheelhouse and I I felt like I I had something to share. What do you feel like the first, um, the big break was? I mean, was it it meeting James Marsh or did you think it happened before that? Um, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think of my, my career as like a, 
big break, but I would say that um, I met James Marsh in 1997, mm-hmm. and we decided to make his one of his first um, feature documentaries called Wisconsin Death yeah. Trip together, which came out in December of 1999, and it was very well received, yeah. and it was a very, very small budget. We had a little bit of money from um, BBC Arena, and right. we had a little bit of money from Cinemax, HBO, and that was it. Um, and so it came out and it was this like little film that could, it, it got very well, it was very well received. It premiered at um, Telluride um, and then it went to Venice and then it, it just kind of, and then and then got shortlisted for the Academy Award yeah. for, for Best Documentary. So it, it just outperformed what anybody could have imagined. And that really kind of helped us all. And I mean all, like the, the editor, Jinx Godfrey, the gaffer and the and the key grip from from Wisconsin, um, you know, all of that. The the DP Igel Brun, who's from Denmark, all of us kind of I think it helped us feel a certain amount of maybe momentum and feeling like maybe we had we we could do more. Um, and we all ended up going on to do more, which was really gratifying. So, so I think I look at it that way, which is like this little film that could, and it surprised a lot of people, and it was made from a, such a great place. Um, all, all of us, I think, look back so fondly with that experience. We were all doing it for the right reasons, and we all really loved it. I saw that. That's, uh, yeah, really eerie film. <laughs> I think it opens with that Yo-Yo Ma piece right and then uh but you have music also from i think kale john kale and then dj shadow yeah when i was watching that i mean that's about the black river falls wisconsin all those strange sort of murders suicides there's that window smashing woman right yes what about that story compelled you and i guess you know james as well to take that on because that is very very gritty um, type of topic to delve into, right? Yeah. So it was it was about Black River Falls, a small Wisconsin town, and and in the late 1800s, turn of the century, and all the kind of um, discord and murders and yeah. and 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 strife that happened in mm-hmm. society um, at that time, which is kind of surprising, I think. Um, and James had found a book by Michael Lessie that came out, in, I think, in 1974 yeah. at the Strand Bookstore in New York City, and she just kept, was captivated by it and, and thought that this would make a great film. And so um, he was the one who came up with the whole idea. And then just in my first meeting with him, he just kind of mentioned it, and I was just like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Once again, going to ba- back to that dark, twisted comedy yeah. that yeah. I like, right? Um, that sense of humor. There's humor in that film, in yeah. that film, in, in strange kind of ways. Strange, yeah. um, and so I think that's something that I have in common with James. And mm-hmm. so I was just like, well, what is this film? Okay, let's see. Could we do it together and do it, do it for the little bit of money that's that's being offered? And that's that's how that came about. You collaborate with James a lot. What is what is he like? Um, like in your role, I mean, you worked as co-producer, or producer. I mean, how is that? How does that function with James? Do you find that? there is a shared sensibility or are there like differences that you feel make you complimentary? Um, so James is an amazing individual and I I feel very blessed to have been able to make six films with him. And, um, he's, he's an extraordinary man 
in addition to being an incredible filmmaker. So mm. I feel like I really won the lottery when I when I got to work with him or get to work with him. Um, and he's just a really stand-up person, very honest and straightforward and hardworking, in addition to being really talented. And everybody loves working with him. So it's it's been really wonderful to do that. I would say that we have certain things that we're similar on and then very, very different. He's British. He was yeah. raised in a completely different country. Um, and and we we have a lot of differences, but at the same time, I think we have the same values and we, the same sense of ethical standards, and that really is, I think, the most important thing when you're finding collaborators. Um, and so, in that way, I think we we complement each other. Well, one of the films, I mean, you've definitely worked on a lot of documentaries together, but one, um, I guess, narrative feature was The King, which I saw. I mean, that one, that's a kind of a wild movie. I mean, Bill Hurt is incredible in that, uh, but so is Gale. Um, and then Paul Dano. So like yeah. what, I mean, when you think about narrative versus, or I guess, um, you know, fiction versus like a documentary about something that actually happened, how is the, how does the collaboration change or what does something, I mean, what, what kind of lures you into that, I guess that story specifically? Yeah. So in that film, I wasn't a part of the production of it. I actually was there for the beginning for development. And then mm -hmm. at that point, it moved on to a different production team. Yeah. So I wasn't a part of on set or editorial or any sure. of that. Um, and the other films I've done with James have been nonfiction. So for for his films like Theory of Everything and some yeah. of his other narrative, he has done those with other other um, producers um, and and financiers. So so I, I don't have much to say about that project, and other than to say that I really loved it and yeah. I think the performances are amazing. And um, for it to be something that came off of just having made one you know kind of fairly well done documentary to then be able to do that as a narrative says so much about his talent um, does so, that yeah. does that reflect your humor um yeah i would say there's there's certain yeah. things in that yeah <laughs> for sure for sure there's there, there's you know it's just um one of the images that I remember is just, uh, an, I think it's a clown with some balloons oh, going yeah, over that, just walking the thing. I think yeah. I think James yeah. saw that like actually or somewhere in the oh, world yeah. at one point and then recreated it for the film, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, so it, it it definitely reflects that kind of um, darker side of things. Yeah. So when you when you're kind of in Boston, I mean, you were there, you were working, you know, PA, you were working, you were kind of uh, working as a grip as well. So you're really kind of absorbing things. You're, you're, so when do you, is, do you move to New York after that? I mean, where, where do you go after Boston? So I, I was raised in New York, um, went to Boston for, for undergrad and then worked there for a couple of years and then decided I want to go to film school and mm -hmm. felt like that was the next step. So I applied to film schools and I got into NYU and Columbia, chose Columbia. And mm -hmm. then, so I did, I did my degree here in New York again. Um, so that's kind of how how that all worked. And I felt like at that point I wanted to study film, you know, for real, yeah. um, as opposed to watching a lot of movies and working on films. Um, so that was really where I um, felt like that was going to be this wonderful gift to myself, which is what I tell my students, this luxury of being able to study um, at, a, at an academic institution about something that you love. Was, was that a pronounced transition going from I mean having all these experiences actually on set to kind of learning from others and learning more of the academic side about filmmaking you know I, I would go back to Boston every summer mm -hmm. and work as a grip electric so I continued to to work on set and things like okay. that 
Um, so it was really just kind of, I think, both two different sides of the same coin, all of it kind of learning. But yeah, I mean, you know, studying semiotics and, and all of that kind of stuff yeah. to get in the nitty gritty of some theory and then going on set where it's kind of much more about the, you know, the nuts and bolts and how are we going to, you know, get this light up or, or whatever or haul that cable over there or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, Do you, what was um, so you you go to Columbia, you're in film. I mean, um, what happens kind of after that? I mean, what's what, we kind of talked about the breaks. You don't really see your career as having, you know, necessarily being a break type of career. It is very, um, because I think one of the uh, distinguishing factors is longevity and working on a lot of different projects, but there still seems to be thematic similarities. So after Columbia, I mean, what do you, what's the first step after that? So I, before I, um, so my last year at Columbia, I actually won the, um, Paramount Studios producing, uh, um, I guess it was not an internship, it was a fellowship, um, which was to go out to Los Angeles and be on the lot at Paramount for a year and get paid a stipend Mm. to, to kind of learn about producing and to try to make, make films. I ended up turning that down (laughs) because I realized that I didn't want to go to LA and also that that wasn't really the kind of producer I wanted to be. Mm. So I ended up um, getting offered a job to work um, with um, director, writer, director, John Nathan, this brilliant man um, in Boston, working on these big budget international, um, essentially documentaries, but for corporations. So we did a bunch for Harvard Business School, and we did another one for the 50th anniversary of Sony, mm. uh, the company. And um, and that was an amazing experience, an incredible kind of second um, studying of film to get to like work at that level internationally, really kind of push things and, and all of that. So I did that for a couple of years and then got got a call to go to Nashville, Tennessee, Wow. Um, to do a television series as a producer for the documentary aspect of it called The Road um, and and do that for six months and it ended up being almost six years. The thing that working with, um, like doing work with Harvard Business School, I mean, was it kind of similar to what we were talking about off the air, like that conceit about the organizational mission and trying to get that out of you know organizations? Was that kind of the objective in working with, with those institutions? In the case of the Harvard Business School videos, it was at a time where corporations were spending a lot of money educating their um, employees on certain topics. Mm -hmm. And so what it was was Harvard Business School was leveraging some of their professors to then do these kind of long format multi videotape um, series work right. to kind of do the video version of maybe what would have been a book. Oh, okay. um, gotcha. So that's what those were. And then for Sony, it was this wonderful historical documentary essentially about the history of the first 50 years of Sony. So we got to interview all of these amazing people and, and um, John went to Japan. John's a Japanese scholar as mm. well. Um, so uh, it was really incredible to to work on that. Tennessee, that was the first time you were in the South living there? Yes. How was that? It was like living in an, another country. Yeah. yeah, it was wonderful. Nashville is an amazing place. Um, and I was there during a time in the 90s where it was really coming into its own from the film production side. Mm. So there were people who were there from L.A. and some other places um, but they're also homegrown filmmakers. And we were all starting to really get a chance to have the budgets to really work at a very high level. 
Um, and that was really exciting. And I got a chance to really learn about country music from oh, the yeah. inside out, which I, I knew some of. My father had been a fan of country music. We watched the Johnny Cash show when we were little kids. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I got to um, do a television series for two seasons called At the Ryman, mm. which is at the Ryman Auditorium, which was where the Johnny Cash show actually was filmed wow. when I was a little kid. So there's this like real full, full circle, circle moment. Yeah. And then just a couple of years ago, I got to go back to the Ryman to film um, Michelle Obama yeah. for her final um, night of her big book tour for a documentary I was co-producer yeah. on called Becoming. So it was just this wonderful kind of uh, full circle moment again to get to go to the Ryman. It's a, a beautiful, incredible place to hear music. Um, but anyway, so I got a chance to be at this wonderful moment where we were all given the time, money, and and um, possibilities to just do really high level production with some of the best you know country music stars there ever have been, um, and create a lot of really great work. Well, you worked on you also worked on that Jeff Carson, um, that song right, uh, which was the car, right? Which I saw, I saw that video. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's pretty. It's pretty sad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, is it is pretty really... sad. I would say the one that I really love, which we also won an award for, was uh, Junior Brown, My Wife Thinks mm. You're Dead. Oh, Did you get a chance to no, see, that one? see that one? Junior Brown, My Wife Thinks You're Dead is that kind of twisted, dark okay. comedy that, yeah. that I love. So Michael McNamara did, um, did the Junior Brown um, music video, um, and he's this he's from Boston originally. He's an Irish Catholic too, and then moved to LA and then was in Nashville during this time. I got a chance to work with him on the road, which was the, yeah. the documentary um, mm -hmm. work that I got to do. We were shooting somewhere in America every two and a half days for six months straight. Wow. Um, and doing all these really incredible shoots with all these great country music people doing like little doc pieces with them. So spending time with them for a day and all of that. And we were shooting on 16 millimeter film mm. and I got paid to do this. Wow. <laughs> do you still, is that the music that you still uh, listen to? You still I still to? listen to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I have such an understanding of it now yeah. and such a reverence for it. I got to be in, you know, recording sessions and, and all that kind of stuff. It was really incredible. Becoming was great. I mean, I saw that. Um, so the Becoming, it was kind of interesting because I hadn't read the book that she put out. But um, when I was going to it, I didn't really have a lot of, I didn't, I didn't even know what my expectations would be because I hadn't read the book. So then when I saw it, I think the thing that really stood out to me in that was that the 2008, um, like those C-SPAN interviews. And I remember her, she's kind of standing there um, just with a puzzled look on her face, looking at her husband um, experiencing that level of press for the first time. And what about that project? What drew you into that? What did you experience there? Yeah, I was really lucky to be asked to work on it. So I'm co-producer on it. So I was actually brought on to do one aspect of it, right? And in this case, it was the um, the live big event shoots. Oh, yeah. So mm -hmm. I come from my time in Nashville. I did a, a lot of big multicam live events, yeah. right? So a lot of music concerts and, and other things like that. And so I have this weird, you know, um, career in the sense that I, I've done commercials and music videos and yeah. I've done live concerts yeah. and I've also done narrative features and I've done documentary features. It's just this as shorts. I've, I mean, it's just this very diverse. So I'm able to work in different ways, yeah. particularly now in the doc space, which is really where I've been doing my work for the last two decades, I would say. Um, but bring to it a narrative background and understanding of how to work with actors and how to do all that kind of stuff. So I was brought in because I have this live multicam background. Yeah. So that's what we focused on. We did um, a concert with her in um, 
in Atlanta mm-hmm. at the at the big um, at the big venue there, and yeah. then we did the smaller one in in Ryman Auditorium. Um, so that's really all that I was I was doing on that, and I didn't really have much to do with the the other side of the making of that film. Did you enjoy that experience? Yeah, it was really it was. Um, it was intense. I, I was brought on, you know, like very late in the pro in the process. So we were really having to kind of, you know, make it all happen on the fly. Um, and it was very complicated. And obviously you're also um, working with the first, the former first lady of the United States of yeah. America. So there's yeah. certain security issues too and all of yeah. that. Um, but it was really gratifying and it all came together beautifully. Can we talk about the gates? Um, yes. So the, what was your, what was your um, experience there? Cause I, I didn't. I wasn't even aware that that was something that happened. And that guy, Christo, I guess is his name, and his yes. wife spent uh, a lot of time to put this this thing together, which was like seventy five hundred gates alongside Central Park. I mean, what was your what was your experience with them? What did you think of them? And yeah, that it was whole a, thing? it was amazing. So yeah. I, I I've had a very blessed you know kind <laughs> of career to have these experiences. Yeah. Um, so Christo and Jean Claude, his, his wife, um, Christo just passed I think oh. in, about a year and a half ago, and mm. Jean Claude uh, passed earlier than that. But um, they had been working on this project for twenty five years, yeah. um, which is part of the nature of of their art. And um, they had pitched us in the early 80s when Central Park was like a dust bowl. Um, And then they um, finally were able, under the Bloomberg administration, to be able to do this. So this was in 2005, I think it was. And it was um, co-directed Albert Mazels and Antonio Ferreira. Um, So to work with Albert Mazels, who, as you know, did um, Grey Gardens Mm -hmm. and Salesman and some of the most amazing American documentaries, I think, historically, was a huge thrill. So I had met him because I had volunteered to work on a little shoot that was going on in Central Park like a year and a half before um, when the Dalai Lama came to Central Park. Um, And so I just volunteered to be production manager. And then they hired me after that to work on um, a a pro-vote kind Mm -hmm. of concerts thing that was being done by VH1 or something like that. Um, and then after that, they asked me to produce the gates. So I, I got to be in Central Park for two months in a trailer wow. um, by the boathouse. And I had my own little um, golf cart and I could oh, just really? like go off the way through the, yeah. the, the park on my own little golf cart. It was just an amazing experience and, and got to document um, the prep and then the opening, what they called the opening day. And then um, and then the aftermath of it, it was extraordinary. And that, that had a really polarized Response. I mean, there were people that really liked it, and there were people that really didn't like it. Right? The gates, or the film, or the, the, actual, the gates. actual gates. I think. I think by the time it opened, I think anybody who had been there kind of was yeah, enamored it. with it and really felt like, "Wow, this is super cool and special." And their vision is yeah. always so huge. Um, so yeah. So it's, I. It's just interesting though, like because um, when he was talking about why he wanted to do it, it wasn't some like big altruistic. Aim. I mean, he said, like, yeah, I just want to. This is my art, and I want to. I want to go through with it. But I think one of the things that stuck out to me was they were talking to that. I think this was more in the beginning. They were talking about. Um, they were talking about with that lawyer, and he was telling them how they should approach, you know, the borough and the parks department. And the thing that he kept saying is, "Don't tell them why this is good. Tell them why this is bad. Do you ever, or what's wrong with it? You know, do you ever use that approach when you're like pitching things? I mean, is that something that gravitated to, to you?" That's an interesting uh, idea. I would say probably no. Yeah. I would say probably no. It's for me. It's more about 
um, what I'm passionate about, what mm-hmm. I'm excited about, what I think others will be excited by. Um, what what Christo, I think, meant when he was saying that is kind of what every artist is. I mean, an artist paints a painting and they're doing it for themselves, yeah. right? They're not doing it for like the benefit of, of like, you know, oh, everyone's going to really love this. They're yeah. doing it mostly because they want to, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so this is just on a different scale where there's a lot of people who have to come together and engineers yeah. and all this kind of stuff. So um, other than that, I think it's still the same impulse of somebody to make something. Um, first and foremost, you have to be passionate about it and feel like it. And that his taste and their taste was so unique and so big um, that I think it it really captivated anybody who kind of got a chance to see it because it's such a huge vision. Um, a lot of producing involved. Yeah. Um, uh, Jean-Claude is an amazing producer, mm-hmm. um, and I watched her in action. Um, and and to just see what they were able to create, which is kind of mind-boggling. Yeah. yeah. So then after um, after Nashville, is that when do you, like, what happens after that? I mean, is that when you um, kind of decide to move, you know, back to the city? or? Yeah, I, I felt like five-plus years was the right amount for me in Nashville. It mm-hmm. was time to um, go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I thought about New York, I think San Francisco. I feel like maybe there was one other city that I considered um, and then made the decision it was going to be New York. Uh, so I moved back to New York um, in 99, and that's when I started doing mostly, I think mostly at that time, kind of commercials and industrials um, for like medical, um, studies and things like that, but also commercials, really interesting stuff with, um, a company out of Los Angeles called Imaginary Forces. Um, and then I also was asked to start teaching at Columbia. What was the, what was the city like at that? I mean, I guess that was like pre 9-11. I mean, so what was the, what was the tone and, um, you know, what was the overall, your impressions of the city living there? think it was a pretty pretty great time and mm-hmm. we we kind of got over all of the horrible horrible stuff uh from the you know 80s and, and early 90s mm-hmm. and things were definitely in a better place um and it was a time where there was still good money to do commercial work which mm-hmm. was really nice i've always loved commercials and music videos because i got paid to use some really cool tools yeah. and to to learn how to use them mm-hmm. um, on somebody else's kind of budget, you yeah. know? So that was really a wonderful way to do that. If you're, if you're only doing kind of low-budget independent stuff, you don't really get a chance to kind of stretch that far because you usually can't afford it. Um, so to be able to kind of work on film and work at that kind of high level was was really wonderful. Um, and then, and then, as I said, started teaching. So that was was an adjunct position at that point. So I was just teaching a bit, but started to really um, enjoy that a lot and and wanted to do more of it. Um, speaking of um, you know doing things on a on a high level, uh, I mean, Man on Wire, that was great. Um, so what that was again with James Marsh, right? He Correct. Directed that. Yes. So that's kind of interesting. And I thought it was quite bold. I mean, even on uh, Wisconsin Death Trip, is that you're definitely uh, incorporating a lot of reenactments, which did that feel kind of like a bold decision? I mean, because they I mean, they definitely had um, Philly Petit, right? I mean, they had a lot of archival footage as well. What, what do you think was the, the mindset? And I think the reenactments, I've never seen them done, a, done that well. I mean, they're really incredible. Thank you. But um, what, what led to that decision? Did that feel bold at the time? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, now we call it hybrid documentaries. Mm. Um, at the time, we called them recreations. We had done that on Wisconsin Death Trip yeah. and had really 
I think created some amazing kind yeah. of moments on cinema, to be quite honest. And um, felt so we we knew we could do it, right? We knew we had the the language. We sure. kind of understood how to do it and all that. And so then um, decided uh, James obviously decided that that was going to be how he wanted to do um, Man on Wire. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of documentary footage, which is one of the reasons why I think the film had never been made till that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's footage of Philippe uh, a little tiny bit when he was in Paris and then when he was like practicing in yeah. the field in, yeah. in France which was shot by this amazing French cinematographer which was just breathtaking when we yeah. saw it but there's no footage of the walk mm. and so that's why I don't think it ever got made and that's why it was still something that we we were able to do um, and so when I talk to people who have seen the film they'll often say like oh when he's up on the wire and he's walking across it's amazing it's just like there is no moving yeah. footage. You just see that spot. It's just what the magic of yeah. cinema is, yeah. right? Is you feel like he's walking. And 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 Jinx Godfrey again, incredible editor who was able to make that really come across as if he was walking. But it's really sold to you by the reaction shots when mm-hmm. you see um, his Annie, his yeah, girlfriend, exactly. who's yeah. looking up and telling yeah. you the story, and she sees him with his eye, her eyes, but he's not there he's just it's her memory and then you cut to a shot of a photograph of him and you feel like he's on the wire it's kind of extraordinary but that was really wonderful because I think there hadn't been a lot of recreations done at a certain level so before we did Wisconsin Death Trip was kind of thin blue line had come Mm. out and so that was kind of like the first one that a lot of people referenced and then Man on Wire, you know, and that seemed to to do quite well. And then um, we did it. Uh, uh, we did some more on on Project Nim, mm-hmm. and so and now it's very much a part of of what I think filmmakers consider when they're telling a story, whether or not that's going to be a part of it. Whereas back, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, it was not so typical. Yeah, one thing that stuck out to me in Man on Wire is when he's, <laughs> when they're basically going um, in and out of the World Trade Center. They're trying to basically figure out how to rig this thing, and he uh, he spread he messes up his foot because he steps on a nail, and then he notices what people how people reacted to him differently when he had crutches. He got all this easy access to things, which I thought was really interesting. So when you think about that, I mean, coming off the success of that, I mean, that won the that won the Oscar, right? Correct. Um, did yes. that feel like did you feel like you hit the zeitgeist with that film? I mean, how, what was the response from the public that you that you got? Yeah, we we it was an amazing run. I mean, the film came out in July and it started to really connect with people, and then went into award seasons and 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 basically won every award except for one, which was mm-hmm. extraordinary. I don't think it's ever been kind of done done since yeah. then or or before. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just seemed to it seemed to connect with people, and it was the kind of film that. Um, whether you're into documentaries or not, you could really enjoy. So we were really blessed with that. And it was an extraordinary moment to be able to be um, at the Academy Awards and hear, hear the, the name ring out. And then to have Philippe Petit be there to help accept it um, and do what he did. He, he, he uh, balanced the, um, the uh, award on his, his nose oh, as really? part of it. It was something that was kind of worked out ahead of time just in case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was pretty cool. Is he still around? You know? He is, yes. Wow. He is, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. All right. So then um, another one that, uh, that stuck out to me, another project, was the Dick Johnson, which you were talking about at the beginning. Dick Johnson is dead. Um, and I think um, part of the interest was spurred on because he's a psychiatrist and I'm you know, involved in psychiatry. So I, I definitely like 
seeing what people's journey is and people's experiences. But in terms of that, I mean, there were a lot of folks from Colombia involved in that project as well, right? I mean, what did you, what what led you to be um, involved in that one? I mean, basically finding you know this this daughter who's with her father at alongside various stages of his dementia, and his mother had experienced I think the same thing. So how does that? Um, how did your involvement in that sort of occur? Yeah, so um, I had done a film. Uh, Marilyn Ness had produced a film called 1971, mm-hmm. which I had done recreations on, um, directed by jo- Joanna Hamilton um, several years before. And then when they were getting ready to do this, it has these recreations in it, essentially. It, yeah. it has a, I should say it has a fictional element to it, is what we yeah. call it. We call it fictional scenes. Um, and so then they came to me and said, hey, we'd love for you to join as, as co-producer. So once again, I was in charge of all things fiction. Yeah. Um, all wow. the documentary, Cinema Verite, was sure. done, you know, kind of um, Katie Sivonier and, and Marilyn Ness were kind of more, on the, that was their scope. Yeah. And mine was all things fiction. So um, so at that point, you know, going back to Harold and Maude, that was kind of the template, yeah. which yeah. is this kind of reverence for death and how can you kind of push it and so the original vision was to actually um have dr johnson die many different ways Mm -hmm. um through the magic of cinema as a way of helping to inure inure his daughter to his eventual passing Mm -hmm. her mother had died of um, alzheimer's six years before so they both knew what they were in for um and so they decided to kind of concoct this idea and we were lucky enough that netflix was ready to go for the ride but unfortunately, as you see in the film, um, early on, it seems clear that he's not going to be able to do all of these kind of stunts that we had planned. Yeah. And so then the film kind of shifts and, and becomes something else. And that's one of the great things about nonfiction is that you go in thinking it's going to be this one thing. And then, you know, life and people happen. And then you have to kind of regroup and figure out what, what you want to do now. Um, and that's one of the things that was really exciting and super challenging on that film. I mean, there were a lot of stunts in that, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the, um, I don't know if kitschiness is the right word, but that's definitely part of what you're talking about in terms of that, um, that irreverence. So how was that, how was that to set up? I mean, he, you basically find him dying, quote unquote, all these different ways. And then, um, you know, ending up in heaven where he's eating this double fudge cake. Um, how was that setting up that stuff and working on those, um, stunts? Yeah, so we we kind of plotted various different aspects of it through production. So the first shoot we did was in 2017 at his funeral. Mm -hmm. So we shot that first um, before he left Seattle to move to New York to to be with his daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was closing up and selling the house and all of that. Um, We actually staged that with his congregation in Seattle at his church. So that was our first shoot. And that then informed like what we had and what could work and how that might work. And then we did the shoot of him being killed a couple of different ways with a air conditioner and bicycle getting hit by a bicycle and all these kinds of things. We did that. We realized, okay, that's probably the most we're going to be able to do with that. And then spent time in the cinema verite world and editorially with an incredible editor, um, Nels, um, a bank gardener. And he, he and, and Kirsten kind of crafted a narrative. And then at that point realized, okay, what's, what are we going to shoot for kind of this final big shoot? And at that point it ended up being, um, what 
what his kind of dream would yeah. be, right? His dream and his nightmare, because there's also the mm-hmm. the hell of right. of of the um, the other set. Oh, so we have a heaven creepy, set yeah. and we had a hell set, and yeah. that hell set kind of connected to that night in Brooklyn um, that didn't go so well on, yeah. on Halloween. <laughs> yeah. And so the ability to kind of stretch that and use it in different ways. That's what that V for Vendetta, that mask, right? I think. Uh, yes, yeah, I, yeah. I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah it's very good. Um, so yeah, so it was, but it was an evolving process mm-hmm. informed like, like the films I've done in this, this way, which is that shoot a bunch, edit it together, see what you have, then figure out what you're going to shoot next and then kind of use that other way as informing what your narrative is and what's necessary. Um, and are you happy with the way that turned out? Yeah, I really loved, um, I mean, I, I love working on all my films. I'm very, yeah. I'm very lucky that way. Um, but uh, but Dick Johnson is dead was an amazing experience for every single person who was a part of it. Um, you know, all of us collaborated really well. The producers and Kirsten, um, the, as I said, the editor, and then the cinematographer who yeah. was a former student of mine, oh, wow. um, J.P. Carey, who's an incredible DP. Um, and I always wanted to work with him, and I was able to bring him on on this, and that was really wonderful um, to have him shoot all of the narrative stuff. So Kirsten's an amazing award-winning cinematographer, but really more of cinema verite, um, nonfiction work. And so bringing JP in, who had all the narrative background, and have the two of them craft and work together for the for the fictional scenes was really wonderful. So early aughts, you're kind of you're at Columbia at that point. Um, how was that? How was that experience? Because I mean, had you taught before then, or no? Yeah, I I realized a couple of years ago that I taught for the first time in third grade oh really (laughs) i think i've always been a teacher um and so uh yeah so what did you teach in third grade um math so (laughs) i i was in a a school that wasn't very good okay and my parents pulled me out of it after a year but for that first year um there wasn't much for me to do in math class so they had me teach the other kids math okay i had this i for totally forgot about but then i remembered a couple years ago i was like oh man i started teaching at third grade (laughs) um but i was always somebody i think who had the capacity to um conceptualize maybe complicated things that that other people don't necessarily have the the ability to do Mm -hmm. and then hopefully show others, teach others, inspire others to do that. And that's what I've been able to, to do at Columbia, which has been a, such a, a treat. What have you learned um, in that experience? Because you've, you've been there a while now. I mean, uh, how is your, because you mentioned the evolution of your career, the projects that you take, how is, what, what would you describe as the evolution of your teaching experiences in terms of what you've, um, you know, what you've given to your students, but then also what you've kind of learned th- from them? Yeah, you, you learn so much from your students. Um, so we're professors of professional practice, which in the academic world, it's a, quote, tenure position. Um, but uh, you have to make your, your work that you teach, which mm. is really great. Oh, wow. So there's some universities where it's not that. And you'll find people who haven't been on a set for 30 years and they're still teaching film production or something sure. like that, right? Yeah. So you have to continue to do your work as part of it. So being on sabbatical now, I'm supposed to be doing my work, making work, um, which informs then my work in the classroom, mm-hmm. which is really great. So so that's that's wonderful that there's there's expectation of that and there's room for that. Um, and then the other is just how much you learn from your students. I mean, it just 
their perspective, their different perspective, their experiences. We have a very global international student body here at Columbia, as you can imagine. And so to just learn from them and their cultures and their backgrounds um, is just an, an amazing thing. As you as you kind of look back and then, you know, think in the forward, I mean, do you um, do you still kind of keep in touch with James Right, like to this day, I mean, are you still pretty close? Yeah, so I just saw him recently. He was in New York with his family, so we got a chance to have have dinner together, which was which was really wonderful. So yes, I'm very I'm very much in touch with James. Um, Wisconsin Death Trip ha- is going to be re released this year, yeah. so we're working on that happening with oscilloscope, um, and so we're going to remaster it and and have it out uh, sometime in 2023, which is exciting. So yeah, so um, I'm definitely in touch with James and and. Um, and know what he's up to these days, yeah. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much.